Hello, and welcome to the USF Emergency Medicine Podcast. Hi everyone, I'm Nicole Abdo, and today we're going to be talking about infectious disease. Let's start with bacteria and the most pleasant topic, food poisoning and gastroenteritis. I want to start by distinguishing toxigenic versus invasive bacteria. Toxigenic bacteria produce a preformed toxin, and this can lead to an abrupt onset, whereas invasive bacteria can lead to a gradual onset with systemic symptoms. Examples of toxin-mediated bacteria are Staph aureus, Bacillus cereus, E. coli, Clostridium perfringens, Scombroid, and Ciguatera. I just want to distinguish those last two. Scombroid can be due to eating dark meat fish like tuna, and it can present with a histamine-like reaction. Ciguatera can occur from eating carnivorous fish, and this can present with neurologic symptoms. Examples of invasive bacteria are Salmonella, Shigella, Campylobacter, and Yersinia. Here, I just want to mention that Yersinia can be an appendicitis mimic. Treatment of diarrhea focuses on rehydration. You can give antibiotics if it's moderate to severe, and it can shorten the course for about a couple of days. The caveat here is that we don't want to give antibiotics or anti-motility agents if we're concerned about hemolytic uremic syndrome, and this can be caused by E. coli 0157H7. HUS can present with grossly bloody diarrhea, and we're more concerned about this diagnosis in the extremes of age. Let's move on to cholera. Cholera can occur due to poor water quality. It causes a hypersecretion of water and chloride, and the buzzword here is rice water diarrhea. Cholera can present as hypovolemia. We want to focus treatment on rehydration. Antibiotics can shorten the duration, and there, there is a vaccine available for those at risk. Let's move on to botulism. Botulism is due to a spore-forming clostridium, and it's found in soil. It produces a toxin that inhibits acetylcholine at the neuromuscular junction. Botulism presents as a descending paralysis, and I want to stress here that it's a motor dysfunction and it does not present with altered mental status. There are three types of botulism, foodborne, infant, and wound-associated. An infant might present with poor feeding, a weak cry, or a droopy head. We can diagnose it by detecting the toxin, and we treat botulism with the antitoxin, intubation, and supportive care. Let's move on to STDs. First one we'll talk about is chlamydia. Chlamydia can present as urethritis, cervicitis, or PID. Females are often asymptomatic, and it can be a cause of infertility. Chlamydia can cause lymphogranuloma venereum, this might present as vesicular or ulcerated lesions that start as painless and the infection spreads to the lymph nodes. We diagnose chlamydia clinically. We can also do an ELISA test. You can treat chlamydia with a one-time dose of azithromycin or you can give a course of doxycycline. You can also give erythromycin if the patient is pregnant and we want to treat partners. Let's talk about gonococcus. This is often associated with chlamydia. Gonococcus can cause PID, conjunctivitis, and it can also cause infertility. Like chlamydia, women can be asymptomatic. Treatment is intramuscular ceftriaxone, and again, we want to treat partners, and we also want to treat a chlamydia infection as well. Gonococcus can cause bacteremia. If a patient is sexually active and complaining of joint pain, I want you to consider septic arthritis. We can diagnose this by tapping the joint and doing a culture. 
and we treat this with a larger dose of antibiotics, of the same antibiotics that I mentioned before. Let's talk about meningococcus now. This can be a disseminated disease, and here I want to mention Waterhouse-Friedrichsen syndrome. This is an adrenal hemorrhage that can present as hypotension or a petechial purpuric rash. We want to treat this early with ceftriaxone, and you also want to treat close contacts with rifampin. You can also use Cipro or ceftriaxone if the close contact is pregnant. We also have a vaccine against meningococcus. Let's move on to mycobacteria, and there are several types. I'll mention a few associations and then talk about the big one, tuberculosis. Mycobacteria avium intracellulare. This is associated with AIDS and a CD4 count less than 50. Mycobacteria marinum. This is associated with fish handlers and those who handle aquariums. Mycobacteria canzii is a lung disease, and Mycobacteria ulcerans presents as skin ulcers. Now let's talk about tuberculosis, and this is very common worldwide. I'm going to go over the life cycle of TB. First, you have transmission by inhaling respiratory droplets. Then you have a primary infection that appears as a pneumonia. You might see a gone focus on chest x-ray, and this is usually in the lower lung fields. TB then becomes latent, and it lives in macrophages, and this is where the PPD test can convert to positive. And then the patient can have a reactivation of tuberculosis. You might see a gone complex, typically in the apical lesion of the lung. You might also see a calcified hilar lymph node. The most common symptom of tuberculosis is a cough. Patient might also have fever, weight loss, hemoptysis, or night sweats. TB is the most common cause of hemoptysis worldwide. In the US, the most common cause of hemoptysis is bronchitis. We can diagnose TB with a culture or PCR, and we treat it with isoniazid, rifampin, pyrazinamide, and ethambutol. I just wanna mention some of the side effects of these medications. Isoniazid can damage your nerves or your liver cells, and it can present with seizures. Rifampin can turn body fluids orange, and ethambutol can cause optic neuritis. If there is any suspicion of tuberculosis, it's recommended that you put that patient in respiratory isolation. If a patient presents with a positive PPD test but no clinical symptoms, we can treat these patients for nine months with the medications that I mentioned earlier. Let's move on to necrotizing infections. These are bacteria that produce a toxin that can cause myonecrosis, and this is due to gas gangrene. This is typically from the bacteria Clostridium. These infections are rapidly progressing. It's usually due to a trauma or wound. The symptom is usually pain, and this could be pain out of proportion. Patient might have abnormal vitals, gas on an x-ray. The tissue might appear dead and have a foul odor. If the infection is on the genitals, this is called Fournier's gangrene. It's very important to catch these infections early if you see cellulitis or bullae and can palpate gas on exam. Treatment is debridement, and we give antibiotics against gram negatives, and these antibiotics are ampicillin, gentamicin, and clindamycin. Clindamycin is key here due to its antitoxin effects. Let's move on to talking about sepsis and surviving sepsis, and this is an evolving topic. I want to start by discussing SIRS. SIRS is an umbrella term, and you need two or more of the following to diagnose it. Tachycardia greater than 90, a respiratory rate greater than 20, 
a temperature greater than 38 or less than 36, a white blood cell count less than 4, greater than 12, or greater than 10% bands. Under the umbrella of SIRS are sepsis and septic shock. We'll start by talking about sepsis. Sepsis is a life-threatening organ dysfunction, and it's defined as SIRS plus an infection. We can use this clinical scale called the Q-SOFA to assess perfusion, and this helps us enhance our suspicion of sepsis. Basically, the more a patient has on the Q-SOFA, the higher mortality and the longer ICU stay. Now let's talk about septic shock. Septic shock is differentiated from sepsis due to its increased mortality. Septic shock is hypotension refractory to fluids. Patient might have lactate greater than two, and it's very important to continue reassessing and rechecking the lactate because this is a great marker for poor perfusion, and we can determine a patient's decline or improvement. The key points for surviving sepsis are early recognition and early resuscitation with fluids and antibiotics. The goal of resuscitation is tissue perfusion, oxygenation, and preventing further tissue damage. So how do we improve patient outcomes? We use a broad-based treatment approach with IV fluids and broad-spectrum antibiotics. We do blood cultures before antibiotics. And I wanna mention the amount of IV fluids is 30 cc's per kilogram if the patient is hypotensive or if they have a high lactate, and we can give pressors if there's no improvement with IV fluids. Related to sepsis and septic shock, let's mention toxic shock here. Toxic shock is fever, rash, and hypotension. It's typically caused by staph or strep, and it's classically associated with packing, such as tampons or nasal packing. A patient might present with a fever around 102, and a macular rash that desquamates about one to two weeks later. This patient might also be hypotensive with multi-system involvement. Let's move on to syphilis. There are three phases. First, we have primary syphilis, and this presents as a painless chancre and lymphadenopathy. This can resolve in four to eight weeks, and we can diagnose this with nonspecific screening tests such as the VDRL and the RPR. We can confirm this infection with the antibody test. Next, we have secondary syphilis, and this can occur due to untreated primary syphilis. This can happen weeks later, and the key word here is the rash on the palms and soles. Then we have tertiary syphilis. This can occur years later, and it can present with gummas, neurosyphilis, tabes dorsalis, which is impaired proprioception, and you might see an Argyle-Robertson pupil, which is a pupil that accommodates but does not react. Treatment for syphilis is penicillin in a single dose for a primary, and we do multiple doses for a secondary and tertiary infection. Another buzzword I want to talk about with syphilis is the Jarrett-Herxheimer's reaction. This is due to the spirochetes exploding after receiving treatment, and a patient might present with fever and toxicity. Now let's move on to tetanus. We give a lot of tetanus shots in the ER. This is classically associated with puncture wounds or burns. Tetanus is a clinical diagnosis, and a patient might present with pain and tingling at the site, which can lead to spasticity of muscles, tonic convulsions. This is not an altered mental status as tetanus does not have an effect on the brain. Treatment for tetanus is intramuscular immunoglobulin, benzodiazepines, antibiotics, and intubation. 
we want to immunize patients every five to 10 years. The last part of bacteria is tick-borne illnesses, and we'll start with Lyme disease. Lyme disease is caused by Borrelia burgdorferi from the Ixodes tick. The first phase of Lyme disease occurs one week to 10 days after the bite, and this presents with the local rash called erythema migrans, and this can look like a bullseye. The next phase of Lyme disease can happen days to weeks later. This is a disseminated picture. You can see heart blocks and Bell's palsy, and this is a bilateral facial palsy. You might also see meningitis. The third phase of Lyme disease is the late persistent phase, and this can occur months to years later, and this might present with arthritis and encephalopathy. You can diagnose Lyme disease with an ELISA antibody test, and we treat with doxycycline. Next, we have Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever, and this is caused by the rickettsia tick. Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever presents with viral symptoms and then a rash that starts on the extremities and then spreads to the trunk. This rash can be found on the palms and soles. You can have disseminated disease. Labs might show leukocytosis, low platelets or hyponatremia, and treatment is doxycycline. Last of the tick-borne illnesses is ehrlichiosis. This can present with flu-like symptoms. Patient might have a rash and you can have disseminated organ damage here as well. You can diagnose ehrlichiosis with a PCR or an antibody test and treatment is doxycycline or tetracycline. Okay, we finished the bacteria. Let's move on to the viruses. We'll start with Epstein-Barr virus or mono, and this is human herpes virus four. EBV is transmitted via saliva. A patient may present with a triad of pharyngitis, posterior lymphadenopathy, and a fever. I just want to distinguish this from strep, which usually presents with an anterior lymphadenopathy. 50% of patients can have splenomegaly. They might also have soft palate petechiae. If a patient is given amoxicillin for a suspected strep pharyngitis infection when they actually had mono, the patient might present with a maculopapular or petechial rash. EBV is associated with Burkitt's lymphoma and nasopharyngeal carcinoma. Diagnosis is clinical. On labs, you might see atypical lymphocytes, hemolytic anemia, thrombocytopenia, or heterophile antibodies on a monospot test. Treatment is symptomatic. We do not want to give aspirin for this due to the risk of Rye syndrome, and always counsel your patients on refraining from contact sports. Let's move on to influenza. Type A is the most common. This can present with sudden onset fever, sore throat, myalgias, and a non-productive cough. Patients can die from a secondary pneumonia. Treatment is supportive. We can give oseltamivir within 48 hours of symptom onset or if the patient is hospitalized. There's a high mortality at extremes of age and we wanna stress vaccinating yearly. Next, we have parainfluenza. This is primarily the pediatric upper respiratory infections and this includes croup and bronchiolitis. For croup, we can see a steeple sign on a chest x-ray. This is the subglottic edema and the narrowing of the airway. Treatment for croup is cool mist and steroids. Next, I wanna mention hantavirus. This is transmitted via aerosolized rodent excretion. And the key point here that I wanna talk about is hantavirus pulmonary syndrome. And this can present like ARDS on a chest X-ray and treatment is supportive. Let's move on to herpes. Herpes one and two, this is referred to as herpes simplex. 
Herpes 1 usually presents as cold sores, stomatitis, or herpetic whitlow on the fingers. Herpes 2 typically presents on the genitals, and these are painful burning lesions. It is dangerous if a mother in labor has active lesions, and a C-section is recommended here. Herpes remains in the dorsal root ganglion, and it can reactivate with stress or immunocompromise. Herpes can also cause encephalitis. This is a clinical diagnosis, but we can also do a zinc smear or a culture. Treatment is with antivirals. Next, we have human herpes virus 3, which is varicella zoster. This is the cause of chickenpox and shingles. This infection is particularly bad in adults and immunocompromised patients. You might see lesions at different stages of healing, and these lesions appear as dewdrops on a rose petal. That's the buzzword here. I just want to distinguish this from smallpox. Smallpox presents with lesions at all one stage of development. Zoster is a reactivation. It's usually dermatomal. It can present as herpes ophthalmicus, which is the infection of the cranial nerve 5. A patient can present with Hutchison's sign, and this is on the tip of the nose. This can be a precursor to herpes ophthalmicus. You might also see herpes oticus, which is Ramsey-Hunt, and this also presents as Bell's palsy and ear pain. These patients can also get post-herpetic neuralgia, and we want to treat this as we would treat any uh, neuropathic pain. We do have a vaccine now for varicella zoster. The diagnosis is clinical. We want to treat this supportively, and we can use acyclovir if the patient is immunocompromised. Let's move on to talking about HIV. I want to just start by defining AIDS. AIDS is a CD4 count less than 200 or an AIDS-defining illness. HIV presents as a typical viral syndrome and always important to ask a patient's CD4 count. I'm going to go over a few of the CD4 count associations. A CD4 count of 200 to 500 is associated with TB, candidiasis, and Kaposi. A CD4 count of 100 to 200 is associated with PML, PJP, histoplasmosis, and coccidiomycosis. A CD4 count of 50 to 100 is associated with toxoplasmosis, cryptococcus, and CMV. And a CD4 count under 50 is associated with MAC. We can give post-exposure prophylaxis within 72 hours of exposure. And I just want to talk about PJP because this is a common pneumonia in AIDS patients. PJP can present with a non-productive cough, dyspnea on exertion, and you might see bilateral infiltrates in a batwing pattern on the chest x-ray. You can treat PJP with Bactrim, and you can also add steroids if the patient is hypo, uh, hypoxemic on an ABG. If the patient has a sulfa allergy, you can use pentamidine, and I just want to mention the side effect here of hypoglycemia. Let's move on to talking about rabies. The most common cause in the U.S. is bats. It is not transmitted by rodents or rabbits. Rabies is a CNS infection. Um, it can present with paresthesias, seizures, thick saliva, and hydrophobia. You diagnose rabies with a brain biopsy of the animal that inflicted the bite. Treatment of rabies is with the vaccine and the immunoglobulin in the wound as well as at a distant site. You want to give treatment if there is a known or a likely exposure. 
You can give post-exposure prophylaxis if there is a potential contact with a bat. And this could be being in a room with a bat, even if it's indeterminate whether there was actual contact with the bat. Let's move on to talking about pediatric viruses. And we'll start with roseola. This is human herpes virus six and seven. This presents usually under three years old, starts with a fever, then a rash, and this can cause febrile seizures. We don't wanna give aspirin here. Next, we have measles. This is also known as rubiola. This can present as fever, cough, coryza, conjunctivitis, and you might see coplic spots on the inside of the mouth. Measles presents as a rash on the head that spreads downward, and patient can also have multi-system symptoms. Last, we have rubella. This is also known as German measles. This presents as a rash on the face that spreads downward, and it will also present with viral symptoms. Want to mention here that rubella is a torch infection. It's particularly bad in pregnancy. The last topic I want to mention is biological warfare. I'll start with anthrax. There are three presentations, the cutaneous, GI, and pulmonary. Pulmonary is transmitted via inhaling the spores and it causes a mediastinitis. You can see a widened mediastinum on a chest x-ray. Treatment is doxycycline or ciprofloxacin. Next, we have smallpox. This is very contagious and it's transmitted by airborne droplets. This presents as fever and a vesicular rash starting on the face and moving downward. And like I mentioned before, smallpox lesions appear as similar stages of development and this is unlike zoster. We prevent smallpox with a vaccination as it does have high mortality. The last thing I'm gonna mention is plague. This is caused by Yersinia pestis. It's usually um, transmitted by rodents and it's spread by infected fleas. Treatment is streptomycin or gentamicin. That was a lot of information. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.